a word of warning about this special Halloween series. Some elements of the show will depict descriptions of graphic violence from a historical setting that is not suitable for sensitive listeners or younger children. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Harry's, Parcast's Mythical Monsters, Best Fiends, No Such Thing as a Fish, and our contributors at Patreon.com for making tonight's show possible. How well do you know your neighbors? Do you look in on them from time to time? Do they look in on you? The world's a different place now than it was over a hundred years ago but the struggle between good and evil is pervasive and consistent. On the morning of June 10th, 1912, Mary Peckham awoke to do her regular morning chores at her home in the small town of Villisca, Iowa. She stepped outside to hang some laundry at the early hour of 5 a.m. Mary was a good neighbor who paid attention to her surroundings, and on this particular morning, she noticed something extremely strange about her good friend's house next door. It was far too quiet, especially for a home that had two adults and four children living in it. Nevertheless, she didn't want to jump to any conclusions. After all, Villisca was a peaceful and prosperous town. Everybody knew each other, and most were regular churchgoers as well. Perhaps the Moore family was simply sleeping in a bit for some reason. Maybe J.B. Moore's father had fallen ill, and they had slipped out to see him in the middle of the night. But in the back of her mind, she didn't want to be nosy, but she couldn't help but wonder why her friend Sarah Montgomery Moore wasn't stirring. Sarah was the matriarch of the Moore house, and she and Mary generally started their daily chores at about the same time. A couple of hours passed while Mary continued her chores, nervously glancing at the Moore house frequently whenever she could, while also watching the clock, waiting for some signs of life. Surely any minute, the more children, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul, would burst out onto the front porch. Weren't the young Stillinger girls spending the night too? It was time to go knock on the door. Something wasn't right. There were chickens to be let out, cows to be milked. It was after 7 a.m. now, and if they had to leave for a family emergency, she wanted to get someone to help with the animals. strange. No answer. Mary decided to try to open the door. She'd just poke her head in and call out, get people to get up and get out of bed. But it was locked from the inside. 
J.B. Moore, the patriarch of the house, owned a farm implement store in town, and he was late. His top salesman needed Moore's horse team and buggy to make sales calls, and J.B. hadn't shown up yet. So when Mary Peckham called J.B.'s brother Ross at the drugstore in town with her concerns, just across the street at J.B.'s store, they were already wondering where he was. So much so that J.B.'s salesman, Ed Sally, had already taken it upon himself to walk to the Moore family house and see what was going on. At the same time, J.B.'s brother Ross was telling Mary Peckham on the phone that he'd get there as soon as he could. Sally agreed something seemed strange, but when Mary Peckham asked him to milk the cows, he told her he had to get back to the store and that he would send someone else to do that. Shortly after, J.B. Moore's brother Ross arrived and he had a key to the house. Mary Peckham stood behind him as he opened the door to the eerily quiet house and stepped into the darkened parlor. At first glance, everything seemed in order. In fact, neat as a pin, just as Sarah Moore liked to keep it. But the order in that parlor would soon give way to chaos and death when Ross Moore saw a small hand sticking out from under the darkly stained bed covers in the first floor bedroom. He couldn't be sure who it was because they were covered in bloody sheets which had been pulled up over their faces and he'd gone into shock. But he knew something terrible had happened. Sadly, the Moore family wouldn't be the only victims. The darkened house would eventually reveal eight people had been bludgeoned to death with J.B. Moore's own axe. And tragically, only two of them were adults. The Moore children had all been killed as well. And in a horrific case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, so had two young girls from the Stillinger family. They'd just come over to spend the night with their friends after attending the annual Children's Day program with the Moors the night before at First Presbyterian Church in town. The crimes committed that night in Villisca, Iowa defy explanation. It's hard to imagine a human being ever committing such an atrocity. It's the ultimate manifestation of evil, and the cold case surrounding it has poured salt into the 100-year-old wounds that persist to this day. But whoever or whatever perpetrated this horrific crime seems to have left something of himself behind at 508 East 2nd Street in Villisca. Something dark and sinister that simply refuses to leave this earth. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Everyone in the house is dead. Unknown telephone operator to the mother of murdered daughters Lena and Ina Stillinger when she was unable to reach the Moore family by phone. Quoted from Troy Taylor's book, Murdered in Their Beds, from the Dead Men Do Tell Tales series, Whitechapel Press. Join us tonight for part one of our series on the infamous haunted Villisca Axe Murder House. I'm still working on my Carol Ann. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it takes I don't think you could ever get there. Your voice is way too deep. I, on the other hand, can mm. probably do it. And that's right, not well, we're back. There. That's their back, isn't it? I know. It's not. Yes, yeah. of course. But but we are back. We are back. And uh, thank yeah. you so much for joining us for the spooky season again this year, dear listeners. You guys are the only reason we're able to keep doing what we do. 
Yes, and thank you also for supporting our sponsors, which you must be doing because somehow they keep on sponsoring us. That allows us to not only keep doing the show, but to keep distributing it for free. So thank you and give yourselves a pat on the back as well. Now, we mentioned these shows last week, but we wanted to remind you that we recently appeared on the Oddball Podcast, which is a special series dedicated to the Bet Sphere and produced local to the area by Lindsay Kilbride at WJCT 89.9 in Jacksonville. That's right. And we also appeared on the Podstarter podcast, too, or, or I did, rather, yes, to did. talk about how Astonishing Legends got started in podcasting. You can find both Oddball and Podstarter wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, and if you want to hear me ramble on and on like I usually do about topics I'm totally unqualified to talk about, you can catch me and some of our other podcaster compatriots in the special Halloween two-part series on The Vanished podcast from our friends Chris Williamson and Jennifer Taylor. We're all going to be talking about The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and the Headless Horseman. Part one of that releases on October 23rd, and part two releases, of course, on October 31st. Find Vanished wherever you get your podcasts. By the way, if you haven't done it already, check out our new favorite podcast player app, Himalaya. It's super easy to use and updates pretty quick whenever we post a new episode. And it's free for your mobile device. So download Himalaya, find Astonishing Legends and the Midnight Library, and give us both a follow there. Yes, and speaking of the Midnight Library, we'd like to thank everyone who subscribed to the new show from Astonishing Legends Productions. We've received a ton of positive feedback on it and are working to continue to make it better and better with each episode, just as we do with our own show. So we'd like to thank you for listening. Yeah, and if you haven't checked the Midnight Library out yet, find it now wherever you get your podcasts. We think most people that like the kinds of things we talk about here will enjoy the content there, which is presented in an entirely different way by the lovely and talented Miranda Merrick and her assistant, Mr. Darling. All right, let's get down to business. So a lot of people have been asking us to cover this for a while. It's something that gets requested, and especially in light of our series on the Sally House, because there are some similarities between the two locations, believe it or not. Well, we're about at the one-year anniversary. I thought that was significant and apropos. Yes. When we covered the Sally House, that was mentioned to us, and we didn't really know a whole lot about the Velisca story back then. No, but we sure know a lot more about it now. I got to tell you, this story has so much depth to it, it's going to surprise you. And I don't know why I keep being surprised, being we've been doing this for five years now. (laughs) And every time I think, oh, we're going to do this and it'll be easy and it's just going to be one little thing. And then every single time, and this is where our show comes from, folks, every single time you start to really drill down on things, you find out there is always so much more to the story, especially when it's a legendary story like this than just that surface thing that you've heard. If you've heard of the Velisca Axe murder house, which a lot of you might not have heard of it. And I have to be honest, before we went to the Sally house, I hadn't heard of it either. It's a story that's out there with a lot of ghost hunters because it's a house that's heavily hunted and heavily haunted because it is like one of those places where, you know, when you go there, a lot of things happen. Chairs get moved around, doors slam, children's voices are heard playing, there's a lot of activity at the house. Now, that's not to say that, you know, as people expect, and we always kind of make this joke, is that people will go to a place like Greyfriars or Sally House and say, well, nothing happened to me. I want my money back. It's like, well, what did you want? I mean, did you want to get scratched? Yeah. That doesn't always happen. It's not a vending machine for spooks and scares. Those aren't decided by you, the person who takes the tour. So, 
it's just a random thing, but stuff does seem to happen there a lot. So it's known really well by people who do ghost investigations. But even then, it's not one of those places you hear a lot about, like Mansfield or Waverly, for that matter. It's a small little house in the Midwest in a little town that's surrounded by farms. But the reason that we think this story is important is that it represents so many little towns in America, not only from the heartland of America, but the little towns that outlie the big cities. It's really a, an American story, a story of, quote-unquote, Americana. You've heard of the term the gay 90s, the 1890s, when things were kind of lively and fun, and it seemed to be a, an era of opportunity and growth and the Industrial Revolution. Of course, it wasn't great for everybody, especially people in certain socioeconomic, racial, and ethnic classes, but for the country as a whole, it was a boom time before World War I started or the Spanish flu epidemic. So it was a nice time and you don't think about these things, but humans are humans. And to Scott's point earlier, what unfolds and keeps the mystery alive for us, having covered so many of these types of stories, is that it's a human story. At the base of it are people and they do their human things and they behave in the same ways that we always have been and always will and so you end up identifying with them. And it reminded me a lot of when we covered Dyatlov Pass. And that touched Scott. And it got me in the emotions because these are young people that you may have known. These were young people you may know now. It just happened at a different time. And this family you're about to hear could be like any other family that you know of or heard of, or even people in your own family, your own relatives and friends. So, yeah, and uh, getting back to it, uh, you know, we had that warning at the very top of the show, but I just want to reiterate, especially as a parent, there's going to be some things about this story that are hard to hear. And I, I'll tell you point blank that when I was reading some of the research that we read to get prepared for this, I honestly had a hard time. I, you know, I didn't fully break down crying, but I got real close. So yeah. um, I just, <laughs> just I'm going to go ahead and admit that. And you know, uh, those of you that are parents, you know what that feeling is. So be warned that it's hard. We're not going to be doing any horrific sound design relating to some of the tragedies that befell the children in this story. But there was the death of children. And um, that is part of the story. So you're going to be hearing about that. You want to be prepared for that. But uh, by the same token, this is October, and this is the kind of stuff we cover when it comes to October. So Yeah, for me, there's two reasons if you ask why we would cover such a story like this. And people have done that in the past when we do something that's kind of scary or horrific around Halloween especially, and that that is part of the fun here. And we're certainly not having fun with this story. I think it's also a tragedy when something significant happens to people and a town and it's forgotten about and it is in a way keeping their memory alive of knowing their stories you see this on ghost shows all the time if you believe that mediums can talk to the dead and you ask them what do you want what do you want us to do can we do anything for you and that is tell my story because i think some part of it is that if this happened to you and nobody knew the truth about it what would you want you would want the truth to come out if there's any way that justice can be sought for this, you would want that. And it's nice to have your memory kept alive by people who care. Yes, and I also I'm reminded of what James A. Willis said when he was on the show about ghosts exist to keep history alive. And yeah. you know, that being his philosophy on on that. So in this case, we may find out that that has something to do with what's going on as well. But this story is also about pure, unmitigated evil in its darkest form. 
there is just no way to wrap your head around what happened to the victims of these crimes that took place in this house. And as you'll hear as this series unfolds in other ones as well. So it's just particularly heartless. And it's hard to imagine what could bring a person to do the kinds of things that were done in this story. Yeah. And that leads to another point that this house is really haunted, apparently. Well, what made it that way? As we'll see, it may not be the killer, but something dark and evil is there. And every ghost show you see that goes there to investigate, and you read all the blogs and people's accounts that go do investigations, they will tell you this hands down. There's something bad and dark and evil there. But there's also something light. It's the family that's also maybe there themselves, the children that were there. There's a bunch of things residing in that house spiritually, if you're of a mind to believe that. Much like the Sally house, except at the Sally house, there's something weird and kind of dark there possibly, but there were no murders there. There were some deaths in the house, as many old houses have experienced. Yeah. People get old and they die there. But here at Villisca, it happened in a much more gruesome and horrific and terrifying fashion that that house must have some psychic scars to it. Hi, I'm Ben, and when I'm not studying mechanical engineering, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrick and Forrest Burgess. Let's get back to the show. Well, before we get into the ultimate details of the crime itself that is the center of this series, why don't we set the stage by talking a little bit about the town of Villisca and where everything took place? Well, here's a brief description of the town of Villisca, which, by the way, it sounds very nice and pleasant, and uh, we hope to go there one day ourselves, not only to check out the house and maybe do an investigation, but just take in middle America here and all those small-town delights. Villisca itself is a small Midwestern town in Montgomery County in southwestern Iowa. The largest, bigger cities near it are Omaha, Nebraska, 54 miles direct to the west-northwest, and Des Moines, the Iowa state capital, at a little over 83 miles direct to the northeast. At the time of the 2010 U.S. Census, it had a population of 1,252 residents, 525 households, and 331 families within the city limits, which is small. It's just 1.9 square miles. At the U.S. Census in 2000, there were 1,344 people and 576 households with 347 families. So, like many of America's small towns, and with a median income for a family household being $26,694, Villisca seems to be seeing the mid to younger generations moving to the bigger cities or just away for more opportunities. Another thing that's interesting is if you look at Villisca on Google Maps or Google Earth, what have you, and you zoom in, you will see train tracks that run right through town. So uh, for those of you taking notes, keep that in mind because we may come back to that idea. What's interesting to me, too, is that in the early 1900s, when the crime took place, Villisca was actually doing pretty well. There were 1,500 more people living there. The population at that time was probably around 2,500. There were lots of businesses. The uh, railroad was thriving. There was a lot going on. So it's a different thing now than it was then. But you want to think of it as being fairly prosperous back when all this went down. However, there appears to be something or some things that don't want to leave Villisca. And one house in particular, or 
maybe it can't leave. And whatever the case, a shadowy presence has resided in that infamous house for a hundred years or more. Even if it did leave, what would remain is the dark reputation of that one house and the horrific events that happened there, forever tarnishing the history and reputation of Villisca, Iowa. But the town continues to survive and may even still be healing from that single tragic event that took away its innocence. There's a lot of folks that will tell you, and we found this out in our research, that people still have theories about what happened, who did it. It seems to me like it's an open wound. Yeah. Still an open wound. It hasn't healed. It's a scar that is not really recovering. From the moment that crime was discovered by the townspeople, you could see the evolution rapidly of people forming opinions and ideas, and that aspect has not changed. That continues to this day. Not perhaps as feverish as it was, of course, back then when people were really scared, but people still have strong opinions. They do about everything that you know we talk about, certainly, and everything that happens in the news and in your own town and cities. Now, to look at the information that we're going to get, there's a couple of sources that we wanted to shout out. First, of course, the ARC dug up a lot of great information. Our, our research team did really well in finding all these great old articles and some papers that were tangential, but speak to the phenomenon of this type of a crime and what happens to murder tourism. You could say maybe in this in this aspect, but not as ghoulish as someplace where there was just a horrific crime and people just go on and go gawk and see that because that certainly happened at that moment after the town found out about this happening. That gawking, rubbernecking kind of curiosity certainly happened right there at the house with the townspeople. But there are sites, as you know, where people go check stuff out. But in this case, it's more of a tourist attraction that tells the history, but also it is a haunted house that you can go take tours. But again, it's to keep alive the memory of the family and the history of the town, which was an important place in its day. So a couple of the main sources that we're going to check out here. One is the official website for the Villisca Axe Murder House, as it's known, and that is Villisca iowa.com and it's v-i-l-l-i-s-c-a-i-o-w-a so villisca the town is spelled v-i-l-l-i-s-c-a and there's also a book on the incident a really well done and very readable and enjoyable book and that's by troy taylor and it's called murdered in their beds history and hauntings of villisca and the midwest axe murders and a little foreshadowing here this isn't the only axe murder that took place around that time in the Midwest. Well, we mentioned Troy Taylor's website and his books in our Waverly series, if you remember. And we'll, of course, have a link to his terrific and well-researched book on our webpage for the episode. Now, according to these and other sources, just after the turn of the century in the early 1900s, Villisca was more thriving than it is today, with a population of around 2,500. There were many businesses doing well on its main streets, and its train depot had several dozens of trains pulling into the station on a daily basis. Back then, if you had access to a train or a depot or a junction where supplies were loaded on and offloaded, and it was a hub of commerce, you were doing pretty well for yourselves. So that made it a very popular destination in Montgomery County. Before we go any further, I did want to let everybody know we actually do have an interview request out to Troy. So we're going to try to get him on the show, but we haven't heard back yet. If he does come back, we should be able to talk to him about some of the bigger questions because his work is extensive on this subject. I'm very, very impressed with his book, which we have yeah. read. 
he takes a very similar approach to us because he he reverse engineers it from the story, from the spooky part of the story to the front end, and he does exhaustive research along the way. So he has really dug up a lot of really great historical information, and he very graciously gave us permission to use his information for Waverly, and um, we, we will be touching on some of his stuff as a resource for this as well. So just wanted to give a shout out to uh, Troy Taylor again. We would be remiss if we didn't mention that, of course, he also has his own podcast, and you can find that online at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com. If you think we do deep dives, uh, get a load of this. He's at least got 17 episodes based on the research he did for his book called Murdered in Their Beds. And he just came out, I believe, with a season finale. So go check that out. Yeah, the season three finale is uh, Murdered in Their Beds, episode 17. So and that just released October 8th of 2019. All right, so let's come back to the history of Villisca. So there was a military armory there in the state, which was the only one in Iowa, funded by local citizens. Uh, It was started in 1912 and completed in 1913. And the Villisca National Guard Armory, listed on the National Register of Historic Places, which the Villisca House is as well, has had active military units since 1877. And in fact, some of those guards would be deployed after the crime to guard the house from Mm -hmm. looky-loos ineffectively, unfortunately. Not casting aspersions on the National Guard, just uh, you'll hear more about how people were still able to get into No, it, was, it got out of control really fast, which yeah. is, again, that's what I was kind of alluding to earlier here. They, and what I'm going to start calling my preamble rambles. <laughs> preamble ramble. I yeah, like I'm going to trademark that. So, yeah. Company F, housed there at the National Guard, saw action in the Mexican expedition of 1916, World Wars One and Two, the Korean, Vietnam, and Gulf Wars as well. And surrounding Montgomery County lost more men per capita than any other county in the United States during World War II, to which Velisca surely lost some of her native sons. But this legacy of pride, mixed with sadness from loss, unfortunately would be overshadowed by one horrific act that would tarnish the reputation of the town for all time. Today, Villisca is a contrast to what it was in its heyday before and around the turn of the century from the 1880s to the decades after. These days, it's an isolated little town in a remote southwest corner of Iowa. It's accessible by an old two-lane state highway, Highway 71. Businesses are few, unlike in the early 1900s, when the main streets flourished with shops and stores, restaurants, and even a theater, a special treat for residents of the time. Its history goes back to 1859 when a Mr. D.N. Smith, an agent for the Burlington and Missouri or Chicago Burlington and Quincy Railroad Lines, mapped out a railway for the territory and made a plat for a town along it he called Villisca. Over time, the white settlers of the area came to believe Villisca meant pretty place or pleasant or beautiful view. But another legend has it that Villisca is thought to have come from the Native American word Waliska from the Sac and Fox tribal languages, meaning evil spirit. Perhaps more apropos in light of this story. If true, you have to ask yourself, did they know something the white settlers didn't? And this comes back around actually to something that Terry Lovelace said. He makes reference to uh, Paulides and the Missing 411 series. He has a new book out called The Devil's in the Details, I think. And uh, we haven't read this book, so um, I can't speak to it. But it specifically talks about how a lot of times these names, you don't know where they come from, but they are in a way a kind of warning. But on the other hand, (laughs) 
As we said earlier, it's easy to make that connection now. In hindsight, this wasn't the only town that something like this happened in, and the other towns weren't all named Evil Spirit. So just <laughs> well, well, no, but uh, but you're right. It's it is something that instantly reminded me of Terry's story and the passage in his book. And by the way, if you like that interview, if you want to know more about it, I know for a lot of you, that was a lot to hear. It's a man's life story condensed into one single interview. So if you're interested in that, you really get a sense of the whole timeline and how things fit in by reading his book. So there's something, though, that he said about Devil's Den, Arkansas. The Native American lore was that it was a place to be avoided, that they gave it deference. And like Skinwalker Ranch and the Uinta Basin, I think, yes. you have a history there that goes probably back to prehistoric peoples, perhaps, and how they felt about a place. And then how the tribal peoples, when they first populated the areas, and then when the white settlers come, and, and that shift in cultural dynamics and what we believe and you know how we approach bad things that happen in a specific place, it's interesting to see that. But you're right. This is one of those places that maybe there's something to it. And if you do your research, you'll go back, you'll find connections. Skinwalker Ranch also has Dark Canyon, by the way. Yeah. The native peoples know you just don't go there and you don't talk about it because life is better that way. Yeah. But oftentimes the white settlers don't pay attention to that. And not to say that there's a direct connection, but I'm saying that there's a reason those places have legends and lore just like that. Well, before the town of Villisca was founded, there was just a small settlement there the locals called the Forks because it was near the confluence of the Middle and West Nottoway rivers to the south. And this little settlement just consisted of a frame house, a log cabin, and a small general store run by farmer Thomas Moore. And I don't know yet if he has any familial connections to the family we're going to take a look at, the Moore family, but I'm very curious to find that out here. Thomas Moore, the farmer, just sold sundries and supplies to the locals and those traveling through. And as we said before, aided by the railroad, that's what spurred the growth. So as people started coming through and the railroad built up business there, there was a lot of people to sell to and supplies coming in. So that really aided the growth of the town. And, and this little settlement would grow in the years to follow to become a thriving town with a really bright future. But all of this quiet and comfortable prosperity along with the course of its history would be rocked on June 10th, 1912, in this tight-knit, typical small Midwestern town. You know, this town could stand in for Grover's Corners from that Thornton Wilder play called Our Town. I'm sure you, maybe you've heard about it in school. Yes, yeah, I it's, have. I, I haven't yeah. read it, so I'm not going to claim that I right. have, but I, I have heard of it. <laughs> yeah, we had, to read, we had to read it in class. We all took turns playing parts, and I oh, just remembered fun. that. It's like, wow, this sounds idyllic. This is, this is uh, what America's all about. And... Villisca could be that fictional Grover's Corner. It also took place around the same time. But this real town of Villisca would forever be changed by crime that would be one of the most horrific of any era. And now it's time to talk about what exactly happened in Villisca, the reason that we're doing this show in the first place. Just wanted to remind our listeners one more time that there's going to be details of a gruesome nature to many involving crimes against not only adults but children. This is not meant for those sensitive to true crime details and younger audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. And I'll just put a note in here because I we still get letters from people who were horrified by some details we've covered in past shows 
And if at any time this starts to sound unpleasant to you, just stop listening because we get it. It's not for everybody and it is upsetting at points. All right. With that said, let's describe the Velisca house because the house itself has a lot to do with how the crime was committed and the layout of it. And it's a real part of the story. And what's interesting is that from the paranormal angle, that's what's left to the story mainly is the house. In June of 1912, the Velisca house, as we'll be calling it, located at 508 East 2nd Street. Does that sound familiar, Scott? It does, actually. Yeah, well, the, the Sally House familiar. address is a very similar. I believe it's 508 North 2nd Street. Okay, there we go. Yeah. Well, at the time, in June of 1912, that house was occupied, the Velisca house, by Josiah B. Moore. And he was known around town affectionately as Joe or J.B., and we may flop between those first name monikers there because he was really well loved in town as well as the whole family. So people called him Joe or JB. And his wife was named Sarah Montgomery Moore and their four children, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul. That was the Moore family that lived there at the time. And the Moores, as we said, they were a well-liked family in town and they had neighbors with whom they were friends. And some of those neighbor friends of theirs was another family called the Stillingers. Well, the father of that family was named Joseph, so he was also known as Joe, and his wife was also named Sarah, so it was Joe and Sarah Stillinger, and they had their children, Lena and Ina. So yeah, another Joe and Sarah, and these Stillingers, they lived on a farm that was about two miles south of town, so not real close, but it makes a difference in the logistics of the story. Yeah, and that wasn't their only two girls, actually. They yeah. had seven other siblings, and on top of that, their mom was pregnant as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Tragically, that pregnancy would not work out either. So the house was built in 1868, and it was purchased by the Moors in 1903. It's a two-story wooden frame house, white, with an outhouse, and a hand-cranked water pump in the back. Modest, but homey and a little cramped for a family of six. If looking at it, the left side has the two-story peaked roof section with two bedrooms upstairs, and the parlor or living room below that has a cast iron stove for heat, and there's a single-story section to the right with a porch. It's a very classic-looking house, the way it mm -hmm. presents itself. There's also a small porch at the rear of the house at the back door. The single-story downstairs section has the kitchen with a small pantry where there's a chimney for the wood cooking stove, still there in the kitchen, maybe not the original one, but one from the era. And on the other side of the kitchen chimney are two Amityville house-style quarter-circle windows. Uh, I don't know how, and if anybody's still buying those. I do see them from time to time on a house, but... You I do, would, but and you know what we're talking about here, right, Scott? Yeah, the, yeah, uh, yeah. I would think the market would have dried up for those. But anyway, <laughs> and, it, and it probably has. This was yeah. built a long time ago. Right. So these quarter-circle windows illuminate the small attic space over the kitchen. The low, unfinished attic space was used for storage and is accessible through a small door. There's a cellar access door on the right side of the house, below the kitchen, one that's ground level, common to many homes of the period. Also downstairs is the small bedroom where their daughter Catherine slept, which was also used as a sewing room by her mother. The larger upstairs bedroom on the south side of the house was shared by the sons, Herman, Boyd, and Paul, while the parents slept in the smaller, cramped bedroom with a low ceiling that meets you right at the top of the stairs. So uh, they had it pretty well filled up. Sarah actually went out of her way to keep it very nice and neat. She was known to run a very spick and span house. So mm -hmm. Caddy Corner or Kitty Corner or Cater Corner, this is <laughs> yeah, you. Which do you say? Caddy Corner. Okay. I haven't heard these. Well, I've heard Kitty Corner. I've never heard yeah. this Cater yeah. Corner. 
Yeah. You say that uh, where you're from? No, I'd, I'd heard uh, either Kitty Corner and then there's Caddy Corner from Grammarist.com. Caddy Corner, Kitty Corner, or Cater Corner, they all derive from the Middle English Catera Corner, literally meaning four-cornered. So oh. all three forms are used. Take your pick is what we're saying here. Yes. And what it means usually is that it's just something that's positioned diagonally across a four-way intersection, but it can just mean anything that's diagonal. And, and we're explaining this for our overseas listeners in case they don't know what we're talking about, because it's diagonal to the house. And if you look at an aerial map, you'll see what we're talking about, but it's at a diagonal angle to the main house. And it's a smaller red building and it has that upper door. So it tells me that that was probably a barn at one time, but nowadays it serves as the house's tour office and base camp for investigators. So a lot of people will do overnight investigations. You can set up your base camp there. You'll see on the ghost hunting shows, that's where they have their communications outpost because it's away from the house, but it's right next to it. And In other words, this is the building I'll be in. <laughs> well, <that> was, <laughs> I was just about to say, yeah. that does not uh, preclude you from an experience, because a lot of the times, those buildings near a place like that will also be haunted. In fact, pretty much, I'm going to guess every time, because it's like the apartment buildings next to Greyfriars. Even though you're on the other side of the fence, they say those apartment buildings that are closest to the graveyard also experience a lot of yeah, that's paranormal true. activity. That's true. And same thing at Waverly in the bunkhouse there, which was the converted water pump building there, the big uh, cisterns. So you're not safe just being 20 feet away. But that's what this building is out back. That is the very general description of the layout of the house. We'll get into it more as we delve into the specifics of the crime itself because it seems the perpetrator had a definite pattern of how he went about doing things that fateful evening. Hello everyone, I'm Talisa from Sydney, Australia, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, it's uh, come to that time in the show where it's time to talk about what exactly happened at the house in Villisca. Yes, the day before and the morning after. Early Sunday morning on July 9th, two of the daughters of Joseph or Joe Stillinger and his wife, Sarah, left their home for church. Lena and Ina attended the First Presbyterian Church on 3rd Avenue, which was having their annual Children's Day event, later that evening at 8 p.m. Now, the Stillinger girls had planned on spending the afternoon with their grandmother after church, having dinner at her house, then spending the night there after the Children's Day Festival was finished. But instead of spending the night at Grandma's, one of the Moore daughters, Catherine, had invited Lena and Ina to spend the night at her house. And this is interesting. You know, the reason for this was the city lamps, the city, the lights for the city were mm -hmm. not working due to a dispute between the power company and, I guess, the city regulators or something. So it was actually a particularly dark night, and it later came to be known as the darkest night in Velisca's history. But one of the things that these two girls didn't particularly want to do was walk to their grandmother's house in the dark. So Josiah Moore telephoned the Stillinger residence before leaving for the event to ask for permission for the girls to spend the night at his house, Josiah being Joe. The older sister to Lena and Ina, Blanche Stillinger, answered the phone and told Josiah, or Joe, or J.B. Moore, that her parents mm -hmm. were out of the house and that she would give them the message. She also told them that they would have no problem with it, so it was a no-brainer that they could stay over there. Here's an interesting thing about J.B., by the way, or Joe, or Josiah Stillinger. Uh, he had a reputation for being a pretty hard man 
and potentially became a suspect later because of how, I guess, blunt he was. Yeah, he was not uh, seen as very friendly and short with people. I mean, he wasn't uh, considered a violent man, but yeah, he was he was brusque, you could brusque. say, unlike J.B. or Josiah, right, who was liked by everybody, and, and so was the family. Uh, his wife, Sarah, was you know very well liked. Everybody loved them. And of course, that made people start to suspect people who weren't as nice as them and maybe had a beef with them in some way. But these families seemed to be friends. They seemed to get along, and certainly the daughters were friends. And the thought was that the parents didn't want their daughters walking home the couple of miles in the dark right. themselves. So here's a nice sleepover idea, and they can all walk home together after this very fun Children's Day event at the church. Right. So those that went to the Children's Day program said that all of the Moore kids and the Stillinger girls participated in the exercises with the mother, Sarah Moore, coordinating the event while Father Josiah was present in the congregation. When the program ended around 9.30 p.m., the Moore family, along with the two Stillinger girls, all walked home from the church, entering the residence at some point between 9.45 and 10 p.m. And as we said earlier, the town was dark that night, lit only by oil lamps in people's homes and gaslighting because the electricity had been shut off due to a dispute between city council and the electric company. Yeah, when there's a dispute, they just turn off Yeah, we'll turn it all off. We'll show them. Right. You know, nowadays, people are going to lose it. You know, everything we have is run by electricity. Boy, I can't get online. Back then, yeah, electricity had been around for a while, but people were more outdoorsy. You know, a lot of it was a farming community, and they were used to not having electricity around. So they had plenty of lamps and candles around and people went to bed early. You know, they didn't stay up all night binging stuff. So they were more used to it. So it wasn't a big deal. But of course, it's still dark outside. And just to be safe, it's better if y'all travel together and get home and turn on the oil lamp. So it wasn't a big deal. But just imagine the streets and the whole town being darker than usual. But like I said, the Moors were used to it. You know, their house had no electricity or indoor plumbing inside anyway. Right. And most of the houses didn't. They all had outhouses. And you can still see that, I believe, in the backyard. So enter Mary Peckham. She figures prominently in this story. She was the Moore's next door neighbor, and she had gotten up around 4 a.m. the next morning, this on June 10th, and came out of her house after sunrise, which was around 4.47 a.m. Forrest looked that up. So I do always love to look up the sunrise and the weather if there's a record of it. I was just talking with Scott about the logic of it because, you know, we are going to look at this from an investigative angle too, as well as the spooky and the paranormal. But does any of this make sense? Because parts of this case are very weird and some weren't very well investigated or noted at the time. So logic will play a factor. And I was discussing with Scott, well, why would you go outside to hang laundry? I mean, that's, you know, on a farm, 4 a.m. is not that early. It's about normal time, but you don't generally start doing a bunch of chores before the sun gets up and it's dark outside. But part of the reason is that, yeah, so she gets up at four If the sun rises at about a quarter to five, that's about the time she can come out and start hanging laundry and looking at what she's doing. And also, you want to get your chores done before it gets too hot. That's another idea, you know, when people have to work outdoors, especially in June in Iowa, and get kind of steamy hot. So get that done, retire early in the afternoon. Yeah, so by seven o'clock, noticing the clock in her own kitchen, she thought it was strange that the Moore's house up until this point was still unusually quiet because Sarah Moore was usually outside by then doing her own chores and fixing breakfast for her family 
with these four lively children who, as anyone who has children knows, uh, <laughs> kids get up early and they get, and usually they're feeling pretty hyper in the morning yeah. because they're well rested. <laughs> And J.B. Moore was also usually always leaving for work early in the morning. So she thought maybe the family was sick since the house had been twice recently quarantined for smallpox. So she waited a little while longer, but within the hour, sometime before 8, she walked over to the Moore's front door and knocked on it. And there was no answer. It was just an unsettling quiet to it. So she knocked again, but nothing stirred. She then tried to open the door so that she might call out to her friend Sarah to make sure everything was all right, but she was puzzled to find that the door was locked from the inside, which was unusual for their safe little town. People didn't lock their doors here. Well, there's people in in some towns in America which still don't normally lock their doors if they're going to be around, maybe if they go on vacation. But certainly uh, when I was a kid, I had relatives that lived in a farming community and they left all their doors open. And that was a common thing. It was a different time back then. I remember my grandmother saying that they'd leave for the day to go into town and they'd notice that somebody had stopped by their house, used the bathroom and left a note and maybe made themselves a sandwich. And it right. wasn't a big deal. Right. And they left a couple of bucks for them. Like people <laughs> in some places, it's that friendly. But you don't, you know, trash the place and you try and compensate them. But it's not a big deal. They didn't care. But there's a reason perhaps why whoever was there during the night did lock all the doors. But Mary found that unusual, first of all. Yeah, she knew that that didn't make sense. Yeah, she just wanted to stick her head in and, and call out to her friend. And, and she really liked Sarah. They were, you know, difference in age, but they were friends right. and she wanted to help her out and see if she could do anything for her. That's just, you know, being neighborly. Right. So she figured, well, they must all be really sick or maybe they just decided to sleep in, but she is starting to get a little concerned, but probably didn't want to jump to any conclusions. After all, what's going to happen in their little safe little town? After speculating on things that might have happened or maybe they traveled because there's somebody else in the family had some unfortunate event happen. Maybe JB's father had gotten sick passed away or something, and they all had to leave. So she went back out to the Moore's barn to let their chickens out into the yard, trying to help out her friend Sarah if she was sick, and then tried to get back to her own chores. But as time passed, Mary grew increasingly worried that something was wrong as the Moore house remained quiet. She finally placed a telephone call to Ross Moore, who was JB's brother, and he assured her he would come by as soon as he could. He arrived to see Mary still trying to get someone in the house to stir. He tried to peek through a bedroom window, but he couldn't see anything. It was too dark to see inside. So he went back to the front door, pounding on it and calling out for his brother and sister-in-law. Still not getting an answer or hearing movement, Ross got out his own set of keys to the house and unlocked the door. He stepped inside into the parlor while Mary waited at the front doorway, going no further. He looked around and there was no one in the parlor and no one in the kitchen he could see. He called out, but there was still only silence. He did note that it was very clean, that it was very well taken care of, which was something that Sarah liked to do. And then he walked over to one of the children's bedrooms on the opposite side of the parlor and opened the door very slowly to peek inside. What he saw in the dim light with the shades drawn momentarily puzzled him and then it shocked and horrified him. There were two small figures on the bed with the sheets pulled up over their faces. The sheets were darkly stained, and a small hand stuck out from the covering. The room had an unmistakable smell, and then it dawned on him that the bodies were covered in blood. He didn't check to see who they might be before running to the front door to tell Mary Peckham to call the sheriff. 
She ran back to her house and placed a call to the farm equipment store that Josiah or J.B. Moore owned called the Moore Implement Company, a successful John Deere Company franchise. J.B.'s senior employee, Ed Selly, picked up the phone and said that he'd just seen Haycourt and the city marshal walk past the store and he'd go alert him and send him over as soon as possible. Now, after Mary had spoken to Selly, Ross Moore called the store himself and talked to Ed, who he'd talked to earlier that day. Ross asked Ed if anyone had seen J.B. yet, and Ed said no, but that he'd send over another employee named Carl to help out with milking the cows. Carl apparently did this whenever they would travel. So Mm -hmm. when Carl showed up, Ross was sitting on the porch deep in thought over the possible scenarios considering what he just found. It seems to me, based on everything that we've learned uh, in looking at this case, that he was probably in shock. And he hadn't even gone further into the house at this point. Well, no. Imagine seeing that and not hearing the other people you know are there. And your imagination just takes over. So Carl tried to reassure Ross not to worry and uh, said he'd go take care of milking the cows. Ross's quiet response was, something terrible has happened here. And the terrible thing that Ross Moore was saying had happened at the house would turn out to be the gruesome murder of the entire Moore family, including the two Stillinger daughters who were innocently and unfortunately just spending the night with their friends. All were thought to have been bludgeoned in the head with an axe as they slept, with the likely murder weapon left at the scene. It was Josiah Moore's own axe, Based on the testimony of people who saw the Moore family leave the Children's Day event, as well as Mary Peckham, who was the first to see the house in the morning, it's believed the murderer entered the Moore home sometime between midnight and 5 a.m. But some believe the killer may have been waiting and hiding in the house since earlier that evening, possibly in that small attic space, or as some believe, maybe in the cellar, but either way, waiting for the family to fall asleep. The two bodies in the downstairs bedroom were Lena Stillinger, 11 years old, some sources say she was 12, and her sister, Ina, 8 years old. Once City Marshal Hank Horton arrived on the scene, he discovered the Moore family in the same condition in their upstairs bedrooms. Josiah J.B. Moore was 43. His wife, Sarah Montgomery Moore, was 39. Their children, Herman Montgomery Moore, was age 11. Mary Catherine was 10. Sons Arthur Boyd, who went by Boyd, was seven, and Paul Vernon Moore was just five years old. The investigation that would follow would be one of the most botched in American criminal history, and the trial turned into a bit of a regional political folly. There were several suspects that were questioned, and even one confession, but the killer was never definitively caught or tried, and the case remains unsolved to this day. That confession, by the way, was actually thrown out, more or less. Not thrown out, but it's, it's, it was regarded as coerced. Yeah. Anybody who watched uh, Making a Murderer knows how that works. And to be fair, this is something that Troy Taylor points out in his book in terms of it being a botched investigation. There were a lot of things that weren't right about it, but conversely, there was no criminal technology at that time. Fingerprinting had just come along, and only a very few people knew about it. Pretty much everything else that we know today, DNA, all of that stuff was so far down the road, it couldn't even possibly be imagined. Think about this. Yes, they had fingerprinting technology. They knew about it, but they didn't have a database to check it against. So you would have to catch the killer and match the fingerprints to this person, provided that they left any. I mean, there were records, but they had to be checked manually. 
like it, in the prison yeah. system, there was paper. Right, there's no database, yeah. right, that, you know, where you can go easily go check them, plus there's no computers. So, of course, you, you can't match it to today's standards, but even by those standards back then, they didn't really know what to do. And it wasn't handled in the most professional manner, but they did the best they could in the panic and shock that they all felt. And as you can imagine, news of the tragedy had spread like wildfire in this small Midwestern town. And by noon, the Villisca National Guard had to be called in to cordon off the house and the property. And the rest of the Moore relatives were the first to know, of course, because they were calling each other. And Mary Peckham was telephoning people. And they made calls, and those people they called, they called others. And telephone operators in those days ran switchboards where they literally and manually plugged cables into a board to connect people's calls. And they could listen in on the conversations if they wished. So as they heard the news, they were notifying people that they thought should know. So as the saying goes, the switchboards lit up. And local law enforcement was ill-equipped to handle the crime scene, both through a lack of manpower and by a lack of procedural training. You know, it's fair to say that they never had to deal with something so awful, nor could they ever imagine it happening in their own town. The first major mistake in the investigation, one of several to come, was not securing the crime scene. Police investigators from nearby counties and neighboring states would eventually aid in the investigation and bring in resources like bloodhounds. But for that Monday morning on June 10th of 1912, the Villisca law enforcement was on its own. Some estimates from the time are that maybe up to a hundred of the townsfolk and various looky-loos had been allowed to wander through the house to get a gander. Seems like human behavior never changes. In the days following the shocking discovery, however, morbid curiosity and sadness for the family and their surviving relatives and friends turned to suspicion and fear. Private detectives, amateur sleuths, and newspaper reporters began poking around town. People began openly carrying guns and reinforcing their locks. Some families started sleeping all together in the same room at night. And then, of course, rumors and accusations flew as the residents started speculating, forming their own theories and taking sides about who they thought might have done this. It all divided a lot of the citizens of Villisca who disagreed with each other, and strong opinions about the case exist to the present. Yeah, after this happened, people started locking their doors, and locks started selling out at the hardware stores. People started open-carrying weapons, and they started using chamber pots again because they were afraid to even go out to their outhouses. There were also people who would send their kids over to other relatives' houses that they thought might be safer. I mean, it's the standard kind of thing that happens when a horrific crime occurs in what you previously felt was a safe little town. This is the same thing that goes on to this day, but people were pretty rattled about what happened in this house. I'm Carlos, and when I'm not busy scaring the realities of the cities of Latvia, I'm listening to Scott and Force getting down to the astonishing truth behind the legend. Now, let's get back to the show. So it's time to talk a little bit more about the uh, scene of the crime. After Ross Moore, Josiah's brother, entered the home and then quickly backed out, the next people that arrived at the Moore house were Marshal Hank Horton and senior employee Ed Selly. He was the top employee for J.B. Moore. Yeah, the imp- at the implement store. Yes, and he was a sales guy for him. And his name is Ed Selly. little brief levity there. Also, sometimes you'll see it spelled Ed Seeley, but we think Selly is the correct Yeah spelling there. Well, you know, with stories like this, you always see different spellings of names like that. Yeah. 
Ed admitted that he was too scared to go inside, and as he backed away, another Moore brother, Harry Moore, showed up and tried to push past his brother Ross. Marshall Horton ordered everyone out while he took the first look around the crime scene. And the whole house was dimly lit because all the shades had been drawn, so he used a match to enter into the downstairs parlor bedroom. He then lifted the blinds to let more light onto the bodies in the bed, and that's when he noticed that the mirror in the bedroom had been draped with a black cloth of some kind. We're not sure what the reasoning could be here, but it uh, could be that the killer was superstitious. That's one thought, as we'll hear when we cover the trial part. After Marshall Horton briefly inspected every room, he exited the house, and as upset as he was, he knew that he had a job to do. He told those standing on the porch not to let anyone in, and then he took off to go look downtown for Dr. J. Clark Cooper. Dr. Cooper was a 39-year-old physician and surgeon to the area, and he would have knowledge about anatomy and trauma, but he certainly had never worked a murder scene. Neither had Marshall Horton, by the way. This was just not something any of them had. They were all way, way beyond their depth on this situation. But before Marshall Horton arrived back at the house with Dr. Cooper, another physician, Dr. E.C. Huff, and a clergyman, Reverend Ewing, had been called and actually arrived first. So the first professionals to go look through the house were Horton, Dr. J. Clark Cooper, Reverend Ewing, Dr. Huff, and a good doctor that had been brought to the scene by Ed Selly, Dr. F.S. Williams. All would later testify at the coroner's inquest. The coroner for the county was Dr. A.L. Lindquist, who lived about 10 miles to the west in Stanton, Iowa. He would arrive at the house around 9 a.m. and would be the one to conduct the most thorough examination of the scene. But if you uh, read about this in, in Troy's book, he says even that is lacking in significant details. There's, and that's something about this crime that everybody should know is there's not a lot of concrete information that was properly gathered. That's true. And I think it's a little hard to fault the professionals that were there at the time because this is not their bag. They weren't trained for this. They were shocked and sickened themselves. And I can't even imagine seeing that in person for the first time and then having to relive those memories and make notes and testify on it at an inquest. And the, you know, the PTSD that that must bring about. So one is a lack of procedural knowledge about how to conduct a murder investigation. The second point is that this crime scene was contaminated. It had been trampled through. I We don't know how much, but we just told you, like, you know, a lot of people possibly had gone through the house just looking, gawking, maybe taking stuff. And third, I think that the perpetrator knew what he was doing. I think there are reasons that are pretty valid for why there was a lack of evidence to be gathered and why it was hard to figure out for those investigating. But the professionals that were gathered that morning were the best that they could find on such short notice, and they did their best. So what this group found when they initially entered the house and did an examination, the only bodies discovered on the first floor were that of the overnight guests, Lena and Ina Stillinger, in the bedroom accessible through the parlor, normally their friend Catherine's bedroom. Lena was found lying on her right side next to her sister Ina, and Ina was sleeping nearest the wall with the bed pushed up right next to it. Ina had a gray coat covering her face, probably belonging to one of the younger boys and taken from the closet. All of the other seven victims also had their faces covered as well after their murders. 
Now, we're going to call out when we have a little bit of speculation on our part, but this is also thoughts that are shared by others who have examined the cases, and we're going to weigh in on them as we go along rather than do it all at the end, because it'll be fresher in everyone's mind, and you can start to form your own ideas as to what may have happened. I would say a profiler might say that this was perhaps the killer didn't want them to see him and judge him after what he had done, even in death. And maybe it was too gory even for him. Or maybe he thought it would be a more shocking discovery for whoever found them later. It certainly doesn't seem to me that he was trying to protect others from the shocking sight. There was a personal reason to it. Anyway, that's some thoughts of mine. But Lena's body was the only one that was found slightly askew, with her nightgown slid partially up and without underwear, leaving some to speculate that she may have been further assaulted after the initial attack. Or she may have possibly been repositioned or posed by the killer. But none of the doctors had testified or had reported that they believed any of the family members, including these two girls, were sexually assaulted. But what may have led people to believe that she was repositioned in some way or moved was that there was a blood smear on the inner right side of her knee. And, of course, there were no undergarments. However, I would say that it was not that uncommon for some people to not wear underwear under their bedclothes at the time. People would sometimes just wear a nightgown and, and nothing on underneath. But those undergarments were found on the floor. It's also thought that she may have started to wake up just prior to the attack, possibly from her sister's attack, as doctors at the time found what they thought was a defensive wound on one of her arms. The reason people thought that Lena's body position may have been altered, that she was repositioned or posed, or that maybe she had squirmed a little on her own, was described by the testimony of Dr. Williams, quoted as saying, she lay as though she had kicked one foot out of her bed sideways, with one hand up under the pillow on her right side, half sideways, not clear over, but just a little. Apparently, she had been struck in the head and squirmed down in the bed, perhaps one-third of the way. So she was the only one, really, that was not in a prone position, either on their back or face down. She was, as we described, a little askew. Some clues found in the downstairs bedroom include a kerosene lantern found near the foot of the bed. The chimney of the lantern was taken off, and that is the tube or lid part, usually on top of the glass globe or cylinder of the lantern, and that lets the flames exhaust out. And this leads to the idea that the killer may have been planning on setting the house on fire to cover up his crime. Part of a broken keychain was also found on the floor, and this would become a more significant fact because it did not seem to belong to anybody in the family and was thought to have been left by the killer by mistake. Also found in the downstairs bedroom was the suspected murder weapon, Josiah's, or J.B.'s, own axe. It had blood on it, but the murderer had tried to wipe some of it off. And quite weirdly, laying near the axe was about a two-pound slab of bacon, which Dr. Lindquist thought was wrapped in what looked to him like a dish towel, mostly, I think, because it would have been greasy. It's thought that the bacon slab was taken from the icebox in the kitchen since there was another similar-sized slab of bacon there. Now, I found this piece of evidence to be really odd because it seems like a message to me, and this is a bit of speculation on my part again. Why would you leave a slab of bacon in the downstairs bedroom? wrapped in a towel. Is it a message? It didn't seem like there was any purpose to it other than maybe consciously or subconsciously to him 
these victims were just meat and no more important to him than discarded bacon. That's the only reason I could think of why somebody would go to that trouble when you're trying to lessen the clues left at a crime scene. What was discovered in the kitchen on the table was a pan filled with bloody water and an unfinished plate of food. So we're back to speculation. Some think that the killer had rinsed off his hands, then sat down for a meal. But he didn't start the meal or or couldn't finish it or he ran out of time perhaps because he spent some time there in the house after it was done. And as we said, at a quarter to five, the sun was starting to come up and he had to get out of there. And maybe he just ran out of time or for some reason, it didn't seem to me like it would be a meal that Sarah Moore would make and just leave out overnight. She kept that house very tidy. It just doesn't seem like something she would do. So it's thought that the perpetrator had sat down to have himself a meal and calmed down after his experience or just seemed like he would relish in it. And that message with the bacon is just part of the strangeness of it. I think it makes sense that he he might have run out of time. Like you said, maybe the sun was going to come up. But the other message that it sends, which falls in line with some of the theories we'll hear about who this person may have been or what he may have been, you know, there's some suggestion if he had like maybe gotten it out to prepare some food and run out of time, that's indicative of a person who does not have the means to have a good meal himself. Right. That might tell you a little bit about the perpetrator. And being that, maybe he would have taken some other stuff, canned goods or or who knows. But he thought about this. It seemed like he enjoyed it, but he had to change his plans a little. Or it was just done out of strangeness, just to kind of freak people out. Now, discovered in the upstairs bedrooms were the axe marks left in the ceilings of the parents' and children's bedrooms. That was probably later discovered by Marshall Horton. The ceilings are slanted and beveled, if you can imagine this, uh, and low on certain sides of the bedrooms due to the high pitch of the roof. So it seems the suspect left gouges when bringing the axe upwards for repeated blows. Sarah and JB's master bedroom is tiny and cramped, as you can see on the virtual tour on the official Velisca House website, which is very well done. It's got 360-degree camera views that you can drag around, and you get a really good sense of the layout of the house and the actual space and the rooms of the house. And it's a tiny little house. It suited them well, but it's oddly laid out, not what most people are used to, unless you're very familiar with houses that were built, you know, the 1880s and around the turn of the century. But I recommend checking out the official website and then going to the virtual tour, because there's also a little bit of info there that you can get That's narrated as you go through the house, but you do get to see all 360 degrees of it in every room if you want. One strange feature of the house is that from the kitchen, I believe, there's a door that leads to a very narrow staircase that makes a sharp right angle turn. And as you go up this very narrow staircase, the first floor then goes up the staircase and empties right out into the bedroom, this master bedroom of JB's and Sarah's, with no landing. So essentially the stairs stop right as you get onto the floor of their bedroom. And the attic space is directly across from their bedroom door through a small square hallway of sorts next to an attic closet. So we think of hallways are long. This isn't just a square that connects the rooms. And this is a little bit of speculation. Again, we're going to tell you when this is happening. The proximity to the master bedroom with the parents is maybe why it's thought that the killer hid out in the attic space waiting for the house to go to sleep. He, and for the moment, we're assuming it was a he, 
may have wanted to do away with the bigger threats in the house first, the parents. Less walking around a creaky house would mean less chance of being detected by adults. So when Marshall Horton ascended the staircase, the stairwell was quite dark, so he lit a match to light his way. And when he got to the top of the stairs, eye level with the master bedroom floor, or maybe perhaps a little later, he saw a kerosene lamp placed on the floor at the foot of the bed, in a similar fashion to the lamp in the downstairs bedroom where the Stillinger girls were. This lamp, or lantern, also had the chimney or glass globe removed, and the wick of this lantern was also turned down, back into the body of the lantern. And the way that these lanterns work is that if you turn a knob to make the wick rise out of the lantern base, the longer the wick, the brighter the flame. Turn back the wick, and the flame, thus the light, grows dim, and if you turn it all the way down into the body of the lantern, that will extinguish the flame. And oddly, the lamp's glass and or chimney was found under the dresser. And so this also adds to the theory that the killer may have thought about setting the house on fire now on both floors, or he may have wanted to see what he had done by lantern light. When he was satisfied, he extinguished the flame and went about his business. I think if he was going to burn the house down, he would have burnt the house down. I don't think... Yeah. I think that that was just part of his MO, but it just seemed to me that the lantern was just part of how he went about the act of doing what he did. You think... uh did he set it down to throw investigators off that he knew it would be a weird clue or was he just not of his right mind? I think he took the chimney off because those lanterns, it's not very well affixed. Uh, there's a risk of it falling and breaking and making a noise. So I think mm. he probably just turned the wick down and walked around with it like a flashlight and uh, took the chimney down so that he could see and move with it without maybe having that tall piece of glass fall on the floor while he was trying to sneak around the house. That's uh, feasible. My other thought is that a lot of this, I think, as we're about to see here, is visual. What the scene looks like to this kind of psychotic, yeah. you know, and seeing himself do this and relishing the moment. So when Marshall Horton first entered the upstairs bedroom directly from the stairs, he opened the shades and discovered the parents first, laying on their backs, I would imagine, as you have to cross through J.B. and Sarah's bedroom first to get to the south bedroom where the children were. Horton noticed that the mirror connected to the back of the dresser had been covered with cloth, just like the mirror had been downstairs in the parlor bedroom. And here we have another point of speculation, but it's one of the main psychological profiler elemental clues, I think, to be found because it seems as though the killer didn't want to see himself in the mirror. And as Scott said before, this may have been thought of at the time during the testimony in the trial by some to have been a superstition element, that the killer was just superstitious about mirrors, as a lot of people are, and, you know, breaking of mirrors. But I'm thinking maybe it's more of a psychological thing. And again, we don't want to dive into the area of trying to profile serial killers, if that's what this person is, but it seems it was done maybe out of shame or looking at the act from a psychotic or even a supernatural standpoint, what I wonder is perhaps when he saw himself in the mirror spattered with blood, what he saw was not himself, at least not the image he normally saw in the mirror and was comfortable with. Maybe he saw the demon inside him acting out. Maybe he saw something standing behind him and maybe that terrified him. So Sarah slept on the side of the bed, which was butted up against the north wall with the window, while Josiah slept on the open south side of the bed. 
The coroner, Dr. Lindquist, later made an observation that he found one of Sarah's shoes on Josiah's side of the bed turned on its side. Not only was there blood underneath Sarah's shoe, but there was also blood inside it, leading Dr. Lindquist to theorize that the shoe was upright when JB was struck first, catching some of the blood running down the side of the bed. But then the killer had tipped the shoe over on its side when he returned to deliver more axe blows after the initial ones. So the idea is here that Sarah is kind of trapped on her side of the bed up against the wall. So the killer probably would have first struck JB once from his side. This is just us speculating again, with JB being the biggest threat in the house and then her immediately afterward having to lean over JB's body to do that. Right. She's up against the wall there, so there's no access from her side of the bed. So he's right. he's having to do whatever he did, you know, quickly to both of them. And here is one of the more gruesome elements to the story. The estimate at the time was that both JB and Sarah each received 20 to 30 strikes overall. However, it was thought later that JB had received more blows than Sarah. She seemed to be less damaged than her husband. And that would lead people to believe that JB may have been the primary target of all this anger and rage and brutality because his wife, Sarah, didn't have as much trauma to her face as he did. And of course, the walls were all blood spattered. So most reports you'll read will say that first, the blunt edge of the axe was used on everyone, and then later the sharp edge on some of them. Another account says that JB was the only one to receive the sharp edge and everyone else the blunt edge. And this point may only make a difference because it's worth noting that if you believe that the killer had a grudge against JB, perhaps this is a factor, which side to use first. But basically, everyone had the blunt side first, and then they think that more trauma was inflicted after the initial necessary blow. So this person, whoever it was, had a lot of pent-up rage. Other significant clues overall were that all the shades in the house were drawn, except for two, which had no curtains, and those were covered up with some of the Morazone clothing. All of the victims were thought to have been asleep when they were attacked, except possibly for Lena Stillinger, who we said may have started to wake the moment before she was struck. Medical examiners had estimated that the time of death was a little after midnight. I think one of the things that really stuck with me about this case was how ill-prepared everybody was for it from a emotional, spiritual, forensic, criminal, every possible way. It's just, it's so horrific and evil that there's just not really an ability for anyone to have been trained in any way to deal with this. And the first example of that, you think about poor Marshall Horton, who went in yeah. there, he, you know, he's not some wizened, like, investigator from Chicago or New York City. He's a guy right. that lives out in the country and is just kind of a small town marshal. Well, let me put it this way. I think even the most seasoned, hardcore homicide detectives, even of the era back then, this would turn their stomachs. And it's not something that's all that common. I mean, you hear about certain stories that pop up, but it's not like this stuff happened all the time. These are the kinds of trauma you see during wartime in battle. And of course, as we said before, Velisca had provided a lot of soldiers who had died in battles. And of course, World War I is coming up, but it hadn't happened yet. So there were battles that Velisca had provided men for. They came back as veterans or not at all. And that gives people PTSD. But I can't imagine 
the PTSD of the city marshal, John Henry, or Hank Horton, as he was known, and the other first responders, physicians and surgeons, doesn't matter. Those are controlled situations. And seeing this, as you said, it was shocking for any time. And for people that they know, this was such a small town. Everybody knew these people. They weren't strangers. You weren't called in and it's just something horrible that you got to file away. These people are known and they're friends and they're connected with family. So you're right. I think that delivered a huge shock. And I think that the killer may have known that. I think whoever did this also knew that it was going to be horribly shocking and got off on it. But for City Marshal Horton, you know, this guy is almost 51 years old. He was a tough guy. He was tough enough anyway, because he had worked as a security guard for the town before applying for the position of city marshal. And his job then, you know, he's checking doors. He's keeping the streets safe and checking alleys, and he's locking up drunks. And that's the most that happens in a small town, probably some petty theft. But in his job as a security guard for the town or even city marshal, you know, his job is checking doors and keeping these streets safe, and maybe there's a petty squabble or dispute or some stolen property occasionally. But this is all the stuff of of a small town. And he was certainly never used to dealing with a murder before, especially not a multiple murder so shocking. And what he saw shocked him to the core. And at that moment, he knew he'd need help with this investigation. And of course, I'm sure the Moore family was devastated, and a lot of their close friends were, as well as the Stillingers. But it affected everybody around them, too. For example, one of them being the next-door neighbor, Mary Peckham. She would die before the year's end. And some say that what she saw and experienced and just had to think about her whole family, you know, her friends next door being gone, had not been good for her already failing health and may have even hastened her death. Well, as I said before, one of the more interesting aspects psychologically to this case to me was the covered mirrors what do you think about that yeah that was really pretty fascinating i mean i mean it's it's nearly impossible to get into the mind of a person that would do something like this right i'd like to think i have absolutely nothing in common with this person <laughs> just the brutality of it and especially with the kids just these innocent kids it just is like it's really really hard for me to even talk about, honestly. But yeah. so I guess trying to guess at why he covered up the mirrors. There's, I mean, he clearly had a fascination with light or how much light was being emitted. Yeah. I can't figure out if it was a practical thing or something more deranged. It made sense that he would cover the two windows that didn't have blinds on them to prevent anyone outside from seeing what's going on inside. But it seems like he clearly had staged the house in a way that would buy him the amount of time he needed to make his getaway. Right. And that amount of time for however it was that he wanted to get away by locking the doors from the inside, mm-hmm. by covering all the windows, that got him several hours, even half a day. And in some cases, if you think about how he, you know, when he must have finished the crime and when he got right. out. I think that's interesting, but the mirrors, it could have been superstition. It could have been, like you said, shame. That was the first thing that occurred to me, was that he didn't want to see himself, that there was a component of him that knew what he was doing was horrible, and he didn't want to have that mental image in his own mind of what he was or what he became in those moments. 
but it could have also been that he was worried that something was watching him from the other side. I mean, if you go down <laughs> yeah. to the, all the darkest reasons for his motivation and and the idea that he was somehow possessed by an evil entity or something to that effect, there could be a, a greater symbolism behind the covering of the mirrors. Yeah, I mean, that that's why I put that forth as, you know, we do it in the show, consider every angle and some of that includes the way out there like demonic oppression and maybe that's the case that's certainly been what some serial killers have claimed that they've been influenced by a dark spiritual force and we'll never know here in this case because there's no evidence pointing to that that anybody can trust but if you look at what was actually left behind or the few clues sight and seeing are pretty telling clues he covered the faces so as we said before maybe because he didn't want to see them looking at him or he didn't want to have to look at them after what he'd done. And that's like the mirrors. Maybe that's out of shame. Maybe that's out of superstition. Maybe there's something about what they look like that he didn't want to have to deal with. So that was covered. Or maybe, as I said before, maybe it was just a more shocking element once you reveal that cover. But the mirrors, that was interesting. He's also the one seeing himself. And the other thing about the windows is that if he operated totally in the dark, you know, that town was dark that night. People go to bed early. So most people are in bed asleep by 10, maybe 11. You know, being a, a farm community, people got up really early. So he had to definitely leave before the sun came up because he would know that people, that's when they start to get up, even before the sun rises. So he had some time there to enjoy himself. And that involved light with the lanterns probably and hanging up and covering the two windows that had no coverings on there. So I definitely think there was something about him being able to see what he'd done and spend some time there. Like we said, he he made himself a meal. There was something with the bacon. There's a few clues left. We don't know if the keychain that was broken was accidental or maybe a clue to throw people off. So he didn't just leave immediately, which, as we'll hear, some of the theories have been, maybe this was some kind of a hit. Maybe this was a paid assassin to make it look kind of crazy. Or maybe they were just a brutal person who was paid, and that's how they did it. But the best thing, if you don't want to get caught, is you leave immediately, or it's your next opportunity. And that didn't seem to happen here. The killer didn't leave immediately. He spent time there, maybe to calm himself down because he'd planned it so long, and he took a lot of time to wait, maybe at least a few hours, maybe more. And it seems to me that he had thought this through. This wasn't a crime of passion, although the passion is brutal. The number of blows will tell you that. He knew what he was going to do, and he had a basic plan. He knew about the elements of what not to do to get caught, either because he'd planned it so well and for so long in his head, or... He'd done this before. That's going to wrap up part one of our special Halloween series on the Velisca Axe Murder House. We'll be back next week with part two. We hope you'll join us to find out how this story unfolds in myriad ways, both as a true crime and in the afterlife. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. B-E-N. 
Ben. Hi team, my name is Talisa, T-A-L-K-A-R, Carlos Maltz. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. 